Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. In Federalist Number 2, John Jay considered the widespreading country of the American Republic. It was, he argued, as if the land itself was fashioned by the hand of providence, which, in a particular manner, blessed it with a variety of soils and productions, and watered it with innumerable streams for the delight and accommodation of its inhabitants. He continued, a succession of navigable rivers forms a kind of chain round its borders, as if to bind it together. When we think of early American political thought, we tend to overlook the powerful influence of the natural environment on the formation of settlement in both theory and practice. Seminal studies of the ideological origins of the American Revolution approached colonial political ideas as largely derivative from the deep wells of Anglophone ideas and framed largely in opposition to Britain. Yet, as Jefferson reminded his British audience in the Declaration of Independence, it was important to consider the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. Or, as a writer in the 1620s Virginia explained, colonial law was a product of the nature and novelty of the place. In American States of Nature, Mark Somos recovers a powerful and coherent theme in colonial political thought, a constitutive state of nature that identified the American colonies that would declare independence as a natural community in a state of nature viewed as irreducibly and unexchangeably American. Mark Somos joins me from Heidelberg. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So I just want to begin, what is the state of nature? Well, the state of nature is a, a term of art in law, theology, political science, and literature. It has been used in many senses, some of them connected and some of them quite distinct. So in the 18th century alone, it described nudity and innocence, or the uncultivated and untamed condition of lands or peoples or animals. Also, the kingdom of Satan, i.e. the opposite of the state of grace, and the illegal fiction for the pre-political condition of humanity, where people gained and had rights, some or all of which they had to give up and delegate when they combined in a political state. And this last sense has been in continuous use since Thomas Thomas Aquinas and William of Ockham in the 13th and 14th centuries all the way through early modern thinkers, such as Hugo Grotius and Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, Samuel Pufendorf, Christian Tomasius, and then to Enlightenment theorists, including Montesquieu, Rousseau, famously Hume and Battelle, and to more recent figures, such as Carl Schmitt, Robert Nozick, and John Rawls. And so, while my book focuses on early American uses of this legal fiction, some of the most interesting texts I try to describe connect these distinct meanings. For instance, when revolutionary publicists argued that the American continent was in a state of nature, 
that has so much unique demographic and economic potential that the colonists decided to activate their state of nature rights and declared independence from Britain, they would trigger rapid progress and growth, and they would not end up destitute or bankrupt or economically dependent on trade with the old world. It's exactly as you described in, the, in your introduction. By connecting distinct established meanings of the state of nature, namely the state of nature as a location and source of rights, with the state of nature as uncultivated and underpopulated territory. Revolutionary theorists invented what I believe is a uniquely American discourse of exceptionalism to show that independence is a promising gambit. Another connection between distinct meanings of the state of nature was made by New England preachers such as Simeon Howard and Nathaniel Whitaker or Gat Hitchcock, who argued that the American colonists' right to collective resistance against British tyranny was justified by the colonists' true religion, which united them in a virtuous state of nature under God. I hope this answers the question. Uh, so, okay, thank you. So, so it's a, I, the, the book traces it uh, about five different sort of permutations, theological places, people, animals, uh, pre-supra-political rights, uh, and, and, and the, the, what you call the, the conceptual hinterland of race. So it's everywhere. Um, and, and those of us who have sort of looked into the pamphlet literature have noticed it. So, I mean, that leads me to the, the next question, which is, you know, the intellectual history of colonial America has been closely studied. Pulitzer Prize after Pulitzer <laughs> Prize winning study, the great, I mean, the, the, the study by Bernard Balin that has just turned 50 years old. But what have previous historians, in your view, missed as far as, as the talk of the state of nature is concerned? I spent about 10 years hoping that somebody else would write this book. So I, I wouldn't have to. And I, I taught legal history courses on human rights and revolutions in the UK and in the US for about seven years before I decided that I had to write the book. So it's a work of love and frustration. It was clear from the primary sources that the intellectual history of human rights cannot be written or taught without discussing the state of nature in all the thinkers whom I have just mentioned. And then, strangely enough, over the years of teaching, neither I nor the colleagues whom I kept bothering could ever find a secondary source that paid any attention to the hundreds of direct and explicit invocations of the state of nature in American revolutionary texts. So I don't want to pick on writers, but since you mentioned Balin, I'd just like to know, note that it's emblematic of the field that neither brilliant historians such as Balin or Gordon Wood or John Philip Reed or William Nelson, nor standard handbooks students turn to, such as the Companion to American Legal History or the Cambridge History of Law in America, discuss the state of nature in American Revolution discourse at all. The, the primary purpose of my book is to just to marshal and foreground these hundreds of discussions of the state of nature in the short span of 15 years, from 1761 to 1775. And it's a distant secondary ambition to actually try to make sense of them. So I hope that even if readers disagree with my interpretation, the central role of the state of nature in American revolutionary ideology will no longer be neglected. So the short answer to your question is, what historians have missed is the sheer fact that quantitatively and qualitatively, the state of nature ranks with property and liberty 
is a fundamental orientational concept. And I believe that no constitutional intellectual history of the American Revolution can be written without it. So uh, when we so turning to, to the, 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 the sort of the detail of the book, a major pivot of your argument is a speech uh, of, of 1761. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us, I mean, who gave it? Uh, what was it about? Uh, and why, uh, for you, uh, is it so significant? Thank you. So it's a, it's a, the speech was made by James Otis Jr. in what is now known as Paxton's case. So after George II died, many of these writs of assistance had to be renewed. And 53 Boston merchants engaged Otis to argue against the renewal of these writs of assistance. It's a very famous speech. And in fact, Joe Adams spent about 60 years from his own 1761 diary entry to a series of letters that he sent to William Tudor, who was writing Otis's biography in 1819, insisting that this speech marked the beginning of the revolution. And we don't, I don't think that we have taken Adams seriously enough. But nevertheless, legal historians often describe uh, Otis's speech in Baxter's case as a landmark in the evolution of the American Doctrine of Judicial Review. And since we have lost the speech itself, there has been a great deal of work invested in trying to reconstruct the full text. And in the book, I make two claims about the speech. That is, explicit invocations of the state of nature are important and unfortunately neglected, and that I found the best surviving draft. So Adams himself described the speech as, uh, quote, a dissertation on the rights of man in a state of nature, unquote. And according to Otis, in Adams's summary at least, people had a pre-political state of nature right to life, liberty, property, and complete equality. One inference from the state of nature is that slavery is illegal and completely unacceptable. Adams himself notes in his diary, sorry, in his letter to Otis, that the radical uncompromising effect of Otis's application of the state of nature to slavery frightened him. And the passage reads, young as I was and ignorant as I was, I shuddered at the doctrine he taught, and I have all my lifetime shuddered and still shudder at the consequences that may be drawn from such premises. Shall we say that the rights of masters and servants clash and can be decided only by force? I adore the idea of gradual abolitions, but who shall decide how fast or how slowly these abolitions shall be made? That's from from Adams' recollection of the speech. Now, Otis's argument is important also for its political impact. It was adopted by the Massachusetts House of Representatives in numerous communications they sent to London. Otis himself further developed his point in a series of works, including the rights of the British colonists asserted and proved, where Otis celebrated the Glorious Revolution as a complete break in the constitutional continuity that Britain is so proud of. Otis argued that there was a relapse into the state of nature in 1688-89. It was an opportunity to renegotiate everything, the metropolis relationship to the colonies, to the colonies, the slavery, the issue of slavery, naturally, suffrage for women, 
property qualifications for voting and the form of government itself. In many of the points, what is made in Paxton's case and in the works that followed up his speech, resurfaced for decades in identical or increasingly revolutionary forms in colonial messages to London and in revolutionary American and, and the radical English press. So, so this this speech is 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 enormously uh, significant, and then we, you know it comes at the beginning of uh, the decade of the seventeen sixties, where the imperial relationship uh, and the constitutional conventions that govern that re- relationship sort of break down, um, and American political writers are uh, gradually reaching around for a series of arguments that justify. Uh, resistance and quite a lot of, of American political thought uh, has to do with security. Um, and you, in the book, you talk about what you term as a turn to self-defense. So, how what is this turn to self-defense, and and why is it decisive in your view to to the revolution? Thank you. That's a that's an excellent question. So, I have to admit that the turn to self-defense is part of my interpretation with hundreds mm. of references to the state of nature in the primary sources. Mm-hmm. So, I set out the, to write the book and describe approximately 2,000 years of state of nature texts. And as the project progressed, I had to reduce that to 15 years. But the, my actual primary sources I looked at very, very closely and wrote up cover 50 years between 1761 and 1811. Mm. I didn't end up going back to Hesiod and I didn't describe. Thomas Aquinas sufficiently, but nevertheless, I did look very closely at this at these fifty years, and I think that the discourse falls into four stages. Between seventeen sixty one and seventeen seventy, the state of nature primarily served as an independent source of rights to support the various grievances and demonstrations and remonstrances that the colonists mm. sent to London. But something changes in seventeen seventy especially with the Abingdon Resolves and the Boston pamphlet of 1772. From around 1770 to 1775, the sources by and large cluster the inalienable and individual individual state of nature right to self-defense into a collective right to self-defense that belongs to a natural community of colonists that was abandoned by Britain. From 1775 until 1789, I think the state of nature texts are best understood as part of an intensely contested process of constitution-making, constitution both at the federal and the state level. There's absolutely fantastic literature on state-level constitutional debates that features the state of nature very prominently. In the fourth stage, until around 1811, the state of nature is mostly invoked in building a state and building an American self-perception. And at the same time, for the countervailing purpose of reviving the revolutionary meaning in order to resist centralization and consolidation. So at this stage, I think the state of nature becomes an extremely useful concept to understand how anti-federalists and thinkers like John Calhoun and eventually the southern states, before the Civil War could perceive themselves as true inheritors of the American Revolution. They were invoking 
this collective state of nature right to self-defense. And so in this four-part scheme, the turn to self-defense refers to these essential texts, such as the Abingdon Resolves, the Boston, the Boston Pamphlet, and the replies of over 140 towns to Boston by 1773, which I think really has been underappreciated in the secondary literature. It's a fantastic exchange of letters and drafts and arguments. And the exact same stage also includes the first Continental Congress, which spends about one day on administration and housekeeping, and the substantial contributions begin with Patrick Henry declaring that government is dissolved, we are in a state of nature, and he's a Virginian, not a, sorry, he, he's not a Virginian, he's an American. Hmm. So there couldn't be more iconic evocations of, of, of the term in this particular stage. So, you know, broadly speaking, I know you, you, uh, you don't want to engage in sort of a historiographical cut and thrust uh, here, uh, and that's, that's, in, uh, that's entirely reasonable. But, I mean, generally speaking, how does the revolution uh, look different um, when we recenter uh, discussion of the state of nature into its its ideological debates. I mean, how does our understanding of it as an event change? Excellent, thank you. Well, to go back to the introduction, I mean, I think the most important point is that there there was such a thing as a distinctive American state of nature discourse, and I think it is distinct for a host of reasons, and I also think it goes it it comes back to Europe. I think it has a huge impact in Germany, in the Göttingen School, on Garibaldi, in Latin America, and so on and so forth. So when thinkers involved in these major events involve the state of nature, they often explicitly refer to the American revolutionary sense, not, 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 to, the, not to Rousseau's, not to Locke's, not to Blackstone's, and so on and so forth. So it is an original contribution. And then Secondly, I think that the American state of nature discourse is not reducible to natural rights and natural law. And there are numerous reasons for this view, which I try to describe in the book. First of all, it's not what the texts say. So many texts explicitly distinguish between natural rights and state of nature rights. So for instance, Abraham Williams's 1762 reaction sermon or the observator in the Connecticut Courant explained that natural rights are can be alienated when you join the polity, but state of nature rights are even more fundamental than natural rights, and they are inalienable. They are sort of the, the on in the same relationship as fundamental constitutional laws are to positive law. And then I also think it changes our understanding of the American revolutionary ideology in the sense that we, that some historians might have overemphasized the, the influence of Locke. There is mm. no collective right to self-defense grounded in a state of nature in Locke. Mm. The texts themselves involve Croatius, Hobbes, Buffendorf, Montesquieu, Rousseau, and Battelle explicitly over and over and over and over again. Uh, fantastic archives such as uh, the archives of, of Rutgers and Princeton and, and the University of Philadelphia and Harvard and Dartmouth as well show that students have been learning from Scottish teachers 
various exquisite and interesting formulations of the state of nature that have very little to do with Locke. Other uh, historians, I believe, overemphasize the influence of Blackstone. Long before Blackstone's publications in 1765, the commentaries, there already was a sophisticated and effective American state of nature discourse, exemplified by Otis, for instance. So these are four uh, major ways in which I think the historiography of the American Revolution ideology should be slightly amended in light of the primary sources. I just want to I just want to close with one question, um, and uh, you know, apologies if this is sort of out of the blue, but it, early on you mentioned um, American exceptionalism, and, and this is something that. Uh, historians, at least, um, I mean, I, I'm a transplanted North American, but uh, hist- historians in America now, uh, if you use the word exceptionalism or sought its origins, would run uh, in the other direction. Um, I'm just wondering what what you mean uh, by by that term when you associate it with this this particular pattern a, a pattern of political thought. Excellent, thank you. Without the um... Is certainly and indisputably present in the primary sources, but it does mean different things to different people. So, someone like William Johnson or Silas Dean would argue that the American Revolution is a sensible and viable proposition because the American content, as such, is exceptionally powerful. There's a great deal of material and natural potential. So, those who believe that uh, a loss of trade with Britain would render the dooms the, the revolution to failure are mistaken. All the colonists need to do is declare independence and kickstart an independent American economy, which will trump Europe's economies in no time at all. And Hamilton leans towards this view as well. Others, uh, for instance, Jefferson. We're not quite optimistic about it, the, the, the collective effort and the economic potential that this collective effort might lead to. But they were extremely optimistic about the exceptional character of the American state of nature when it came to the, the sheer brute natural power of the continent minus the economics, if that makes any sense. So, so you might have seen the, the excellent books on on Jefferson's influence on the conception of American nature that helped him structure the first public museum in Philadelphia, for instance, that led him to argue that all animals are bigger and better in the new world than they are in the old world, and to counter the so-called degeneracy thesis that was put forth by Buffon and Depau and Reynal and other European thinkers who adapted Aristotle's view to argue that all things degenerate in the new world. So there was a a purely naturalistic view of the American state of nature as well that set up an exceptionalism that was in some ways rival and in some ways complementary to the economic exceptionalism that was equally anchored in a distinct American perception of the off 
the American state of nature. I've been speaking with Mark Somos, the author of American States of Nature, The Origins of Independence, 1761 to 1775, published by Oxford University Press. It is a remarkably uh, detailed work of intellectual history that takes a large body of sources that everybody thought they knew, that everybody had read, that had seen in pamphlet collections and in the footnotes of books that we have mentioned but won't mention again, and has recovered a thick, deep, and revealing discourse of states of nature uh, in all phases of the revolution, writing to and through the revolution. It's a tremendous book. I highly recommend it. Mark, I appreciate you taking the time and for allowing me to speak to you in my language. Thank you. Thank you very much.